good morning, Veritas. Hey, so as Randall's saying that it's almost halfway through the year, pick up your new Bible reading plan, notebook, or bookmarks, all that stuff. Um, I realize that I've been here for almost a year on staff now. And so when July 1 rolls around, that'll be my kind of one-year anniversary. And so I just want to say thank you on behalf of myself and my family. It's been awesome to get to know so many people here in this church. You guys have been overly generous, overly welcoming, and for that, we're thankful. Just super exciting to see what God is doing in our midst and looking forward to seeing more of what God's going to do in our future. So thanks again. Uh, With that said, my family and I are spending the summer as homeless nomads. Uh, which, don't worry, it's by our choice, right? See, we closed on our house that we're buying in August, and we had to move out of our lease in June. So there's this two-month gap in between where we are bouncing around from very generous people here at Veritas, uh, various local campgrounds, and we decided as a family to make an adventure out of it. So we spent this past week camping, uh, and it was an adventure, all right. Uh, But we're excited to be here. Um, This is something that we would have never done when my five kids were really young. It would have been miserable. It would have been terrible. But now they have pretty good attitudes. They're probably more accepting of our circumstance than I am. uh, And we're trying to make some memories and have some fun this summer. With that said, as they get older, I really enjoy the season of life that we're in. I just really enjoy my kids, spending time with them, uh, seeing them grow, seeing them mature. But there's one thing that is true, that as they get older, they become more intuitive. They become more observant. They, they point things out in my life more. In fact, I as a dad often know the right answers. I know what to say. I can tell them, do these things. Don't do those things. And when they were younger, it's like, okay, yep, yep, that, that makes sense. Dad said it, therefore it goes. Uh, But now, they're observant and intuitive and more knowledgeable, and they're very quick to point out when there's inconsistencies in what I say and what I actually do. So I can say, hey guys, clean up the house, put your stuff away, treat people with respect, love Jesus, be nice to your neighbors, memorize Revelation 21 as part of the Bible reading plan. And then they look at me though and say, but dad, are are you doing those things? Put that mess away, kids. But dad, isn't that your pile of crap over there? (laughs) Memorize Revelation 21. Dad, did you memorize this week's passage? All right, see, we can say one thing, but the question then becomes, do we actually do that thing? And hopefully the answer is yes. But, but for a lot of us, a lot of times, there's a gap between our words and, and our actions, and that gap is not okay. And this seems to be true in the church as well. Right? A lot of us know the right answers, especially those of you in this room, maybe you grew up going to church, maybe you've been coming for a while, but you know the right answers. You know what to say. We can speak the Christian lingo. We, we can say disciple, and we can say atonement, and we can say sovereignty, and we can say gospel and words like that. And we can speak the language. We know the right answers. But we have to ask ourselves, does what we say and our actions and the way we live actually align with one another? Or is there a gap? Veritas, I want you to hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it later. This morning, we're going to look at the identity of Jesus. And so we're going to be uh, spending time in God's word in the book of Matthew. But in Matthew sixteen thirteen, Jesus asks his disciples an important question. He says, who do people say that I am? 
And the disciples respond by saying, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, at this point in history, people had been around Jesus enough to know that there's something different about this guy. He wasn't like every other human that had walked the face of this earth. There's something unique about him. And if we were to 2,000 years later ask the same question today, what do people say about Jesus? Who do they say he is in the year 2023? I think we get a variety of answers. Well, some would say he actually probably didn't actually exist. Like, no, he's just a made-up figure. The majority of people, though, would acknowledge that he was a true historical figure. They might say, he was a great man. He was a great prophet. He was a leader. Lead like Jesus. He was a great example. Follow him. Some people might say, he was God. There are many, they might say. He was one of them. He was a prophet. Who knows what they would say, but I think we'd get a lot of answers. And so, Veritas, we're going to look this morning and answer the question, who is Jesus? We're going to look at two passages in particular. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 8 if you have them. And these passages we're going to look at reveal to the disciples who Jesus is, and that also reveals to us who Jesus is. Like Randall said, if you are just joining us, we are in our Life of Christ series. And so we're taking a closer look at the life of Christ because if we as his followers are to imitate him or to follow him or to take his example, it'd be good for us to know who he is, what he said, what he did, what he stood for. And so we've looked at the birth of Jesus and we've looked at his baptism and ministry, how he was tempted. And last week we looked at how Jesus called his disciples. And today we're looking at the identity of Jesus. So Matthew 8, we're going to look at a short passage in here, but just kind of give you a high level overview. Jesus is now doing lots of miracles. He's healing people. He's showing his authority over sickness, over demons, over death. And in verse 23, we show his authority over nature. And so starting in Matthew 8, verse 23, it says this. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, the disciples, they were following Jesus. They followed him onto a boat in the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen, so being on a boat in a sea probably wasn't a new experience for them. They'd probably been there before. The Sea of Galilee sits below sea level, and there was mountains on the side, and so you can imagine wind comes over those mountains and pushes down on the sea, and it was known for great storms, for severe weather. It could pop up out of nowhere, and that's exactly what happened. Now, being fishermen, the disciples probably had been in a boat, had been in storms, but for whatever reason, the storm was different in their minds. For whatever reason, they were fearing their lives. For whatever reason, they felt the need to call out to Jesus to save them. And he's sleeping in the boat. They wake Jesus up, they cry out to him to save them, and we see Jesus ask them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then we see that he stands up, 
he calms the storm. And the passage says that there was a great calm. So it goes from chaos. It goes from a near-death experience, at least in the perspective of the disciples, to calm. Still. Nothing. I mean, can you imagine being there? The sky's dark. The waves are crashing over the boat. It's filling with water. You think, this might be it. And you can't do anything about it. The only thing you can think to do is call it to the God who you know is not like everybody else. Save us. And then he wakes up and he commands the sea. He commands the waves. He commands the wind. And it goes from chaos, turbulent water, to calm, to still, to glass surface on the water. Veritas, what stands out to me the most in this story is not the power of Jesus. Because let's be honest, if you've been in church for a while, you've read stories, you've heard sermons that highlight the power of Jesus. I I don't want to downplay that, but we all know that. What stands out to me the most in this passage is the reaction of the disciples, the reaction of the guys who followed him into the boat. I've never been in the Sea of Galilee. Anybody in here? A few people. We had a few people last time, too. This is great. So some of you have been there. I've never been in a near-death experience in a boat. Maybe some of you have. But I have had a couple days in my life where I thought, in the moment, this might be the end. Like, if this is my last day on earth, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, My wife and I, when she was actually my soon-to-be fiancé about 20 years ago, we were driving on a highway going 70 miles an hour, and out of nowhere, this drunk driver comes behind us, swerves, hits us, sends us down this really steep embankment. We're literally flying through the air, flying through treetops, and uh, by God's grace, we come to a stop completely unscathed. But there was a split second as we were flying through trees, like, this might be it. And I've talked to other people, too, who have had experiences similar to that, whether it was uh, nature, a tornado, whether it was an accident, whether it was a serious crime or maybe even a medical issue where all signs pointed to this isn't going to be very long. But everyone who's ever went through that had a very similar experience. You see, when Emily and I came to a stop, I just remember being like, oh my gosh, like, is it? Are, are you okay? Am I okay? We're okay. Relief. Calm, thankfulness. Yet that's not what we see in the disciples. Verse 27 says that the disciples marveled and asked, Who is this man with this in this boat? Mark's account of this story can be found in Mark 4 and in verse 41. Jesus calms the storm and he says, Why are you so afraid? Why do you lack faith? And then it says they were terrified. Verse 41 says, and they were filled, the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When the disciples realized they lived through a potentially life-ending storm and they're okay, the response wasn't relief. The response was fear. They marveled. They were afraid. Why is that? Doesn't it make sense that like most people, if you have a near-death experience and you get through it, you'd be relieved? Then why are they scared? Well, it seems that they're focusing less on the fact that they're still alive and more on the person who they're in the boat with. 
they asked, what kind of man is this? You see, they were beginning to understand the answer. The disciples, Jewish disciples, they, they, they would have understood that only God can command the wind, that only God can command the waves, that only God can command the sea. And this is littered throughout the Old Testament, a few verses Psalm 89, 8 through 9, it says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God has the authority to still the waves. Psalm 106, 9, he rebuked God. God rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. Do you remember this? The Israelites are leaving Egypt. The Egyptians changed their mind. They're pursuing them. God's people get to the Red Sea and like, oh, I can't go forward. They look back like, can't go backwards. And by the power of God, the Red Sea parts and they walk through on dry land. Only God can do that. One more. Psalm 107, 29. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. You see, the disciples, they're in a boat. A storm came. And at the word of Jesus, everything was calm. The disciples marveled. The disciples were afraid. Because only God has the authority to calm the wind and the waves and the sea. Jesus, who's in the boat with them, just calmed the wind and the waves and the sea. Put two, two together. Only God can do this. Jesus just did that. Therefore, Jesus is what? God. That caused them to be afraid. They understood, or they were beginning to understand that Jesus is in fact God. The point of the story is not, hey, God will calm all your storms. It's not what we see throughout Scripture. In fact, God might bring you into storms. The point of the story is that Jesus Christ is God. This story reveals the identity of Jesus. The carpenter, the man who was born to a virgin, the man who was baptized, who was tempted, the man who called his disciples, the man who was sitting in the boat with them was fully God. And Jesus has the authority we see in the story over the storms. And Matthew 8 and 9 show us that Jesus has authority over everything. I mean, can you imagine being in the boat as the disciples were and beginning to understand that you are in the presence of God himself? No wonder they marveled and no wonder they were afraid. Take a look at one more story, one more example. Matthew 17, flip forward a few pages. This also reveals the identity of Jesus to the disciples and also to us. We're going to look at the first 13 verses or so. And verses 1 and 2 say this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, the three disciples who he was closest to, go up a mountain. And Jesus was transfigured. Now it's like, what, what does that even mean? Well, it means that he was transformed, that his appearance was changed. He was physically different. That word transform is the same word that's used 
when it describes believers who are made more like Christ over time. This is how things were through transformation. This is how things are. In this case, Jesus was physically transformed. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Okay, so now Moses and Elijah and Jesus are together. This is significant. We see two men from the Old Testament in Jesus himself. We see Moses and Elijah. You see, God gave the law, God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. You guys remember that? Moses met with God. If you remember, Moses asks, God, show me your glory. And we see that God responds by saying, no, because if you see my face, you will die. But yet we see in Exodus 33, 23, that Moses catches kind of a a skewed view of God himself. He gets a view of his back. And after getting the Ten Commandments and after having this encounter with God, Moses then comes down the mountain to the rest of God's people and he looks different. He was glowing. And God's people are like, what in the heck is going on? They were terrified. So God used Moses, right? God used Moses, who was also a prophet, who was also an intermediary between God and his people. God used Moses to reveal the law to his people. And after his encounter with God, Moses was changed. Moses reflected God's glory. What about Elijah? So for those of you going through the Veritas Bible reading plan, we read about Elijah a few weeks ago. Right? And so if you remember, Elijah was a prophet who confronted the prophets of other gods on Mount Carmel. So some of God's people were worshiping foreign gods, other gods, idols, and Elijah confronts them and says, no, 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 those are not gods. This is the one true God of the universe. The God of your fathers is the one true God of the universe. So Elijah was a prophet who proclaimed, who spoke about God's glory. All right, so stay with me here. So Peter sees Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and he says in verse 4, Lord, it's good that we're here. It's like, yeah, you think? But then he says, hey, if you wish, I'm going to make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And as he's speaking in verse 5, it says this. He was still speaking, Peter, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So God's voice came from a cloud and said, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. You see, Moses represented the law. He was a prophet And Moses reflected God's glory. There's significance about Moses, right? And then Elijah was a prophet who proclaimed God's glory. And Peter's saying, wow, these three guys are great. Let's make tents for them. And God interrupts him and says, this, Jesus, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, as great as Moses was, as great as Elijah was, they were not on the same playing field. They were not on the same level as Jesus because Jesus is better. 
God says that this is my son who the law and the prophets pointed to. This is my son who fulfills those things. This is my son who the entire scriptures point to. Here he is. You see, Jesus didn't simply reflect God's glory. Jesus didn't simply speak about or proclaim God's glory. Jesus was God's glory. And that should blow your mind. Jesus is what the prophets and the law pointed to. You see, we see God speaks and the disciples out of fear once again are scared. They fall on their face. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And when they lift their eyes, only Jesus remains. In verse 9, Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is raised, is lifted up. And so despite this glorious occurrence, despite the fact that we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, we immediately see Jesus predicting his own death. This passage goes on to say how John the Baptist wasn't treated fairly. You remember his story? didn't end up well. It also kind of foreshadows how Jesus will also not be treated right. How he's going to suffer. See, these three disciples saw Jesus transformed. They saw him transfigured. They saw his appearance change. They also saw Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament heroes. I mean, you, you can imagine what were they thinking. Their presence, though, wasn't to say how great they were. It was to point to the one who is greater. Their presence pointed to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God's son. He is the fulfillment. He is what the Old Testament points to. And then God confirms that by saying, this is my son. What an incredible encounter. It helps us to see who Jesus really is. It helps us to see that Jesus is, in fact, God's son who fulfilled the prophets and the law. Jesus is the awaited Messiah that the Old Testament continually points to. Veritas, we open this morning by looking at Matthew 16 about 22 minutes ago. And we ask the question, who do people say that Jesus is? Well, we keep reading and then Jesus turns us to his disciples and says, who, who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. You see, when Peter says Christ, he's saying, you are the Messiah, you are the Savior, you are the anointed one. Not a Messiah or a Savior who is going to save God's people from other nations, from, from, from oppression. You are the Savior, the Messiah, who's going to save people from their sin. That's a big deal. Peter answered Jesus correctly. And we see who Jesus is. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the promised Messiah who has authority over all. The scriptures cry this out. That's something to marvel at. That's something to be in awe of. That's something that should drive our worship. With that said, it's not lost on me 
that we probably could have skipped the first 23 minutes and I could have said, hey, Veritas, who do you say that Jesus is? And the majority of people in this room would have answered correctly. You probably would have said something like, Jesus is God, God in the flesh. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Savior. And he's the ultimate authority. We'd have been like, yes, that is correct. A lot of us know the right thing to say. A lot of us know the right words. A lot of us know the answers. If you grew up in Sunday school, you were taught when you don't know the answer to shout what? Jesus, you're probably right. (laughs) We know what to say. So Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answers correctly. If he were to ask us, I think a lot of us would answer correctly. We might say something like, Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He has authority over all. Something like that. I think a better question for our context today, this side of the cross, would be, who do you say Jesus is and does your life reflect that? If you acknowledge that Jesus is in fact God with us, are you in awe that God came down to us? That God put on flesh? Think of the disciples' reaction when they were in the boat with him or when they're on the mountain with him and they're seeing and experiencing these things. And God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When you think of Jesus, are you filled with awe like they were? Do you marvel? When you try to comprehend who exactly he is, do you fall on your face and worship? Or do you have a somewhat flippant attitude about it? Eh, he's a good teacher. He's a good guy. Did some cool stuff. Performed some miracles. Good example. I try to follow him when it's convenient or when it benefits me. Or do you say, Jesus is God. He's Lord of my life. And I've surrendered to him. Are you in awe of Jesus Christ? If you acknowledge that Jesus is the promised Messiah, do you put your faith in him and do you find your worth and your value and your identity and your salvation in him alone? Or do you try to find those things in other people and other things? When you say, Jesus died for my sins, do you say it flippantly like, I got a black shirt on today, or it's nice out today? Or do you speak those words with awe and wonder? Do you marvel at the reality of the gospel, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked? Not kind of alive, not doing okay, dead. And we all know we can't undie ourselves, right? But by God's mercy, by his grace, through faith in Christ, we can be made alive. Does the fact that Jesus came down, he put on flesh, he lived the perfect life that we can never live and he died the death that we deserve to die in our place, does that fact bring you to awe and worship? Or does it just roll off your tongue like every other sentence that that you say? When people encountered God or his messengers in the Bible, the common response was fear. We saw in two passages today, the disciples were terrified. They were afraid. But because of the cross through faith in Christ, we don't have to be afraid to approach the throne of God. Through faith in Christ, we can do that anytime we want. Do you do that? 
If you acknowledge that Jesus has authority over all things, does he have authority over your life? Do you submit to him? Do you live life with an open hand? Are you willing to say, God, I'll do whatever, I'll do whenever, I'll go wherever for the sake of your kingdom? Or are there certain areas of your life, certain things that that you hold on to, that you keep a tight fist with because you want to be in control? When life gets hard, when the storms come, they will. I get to talk with a lot of you, and I know there's a lot of things going on in the life of this church. When those things come, do you have rest and peace no matter the circumstance? Do you have rest and peace no matter the outcome? Because your hope and your joy is found in the one who has authority over all things. I'll be honest, this has been a a hard time for at least myself, maybe my family, but myself. Uh, We came into the summer thinking, this summer is going to be great. It's going to be an adventure. We're going to make memories. It's going to be fun. And it's an adventure, and we're making memories. Uh, But I've often felt this just feeling of uneasiness, kind of unrest, as I think, we don't have a house. We're in a camper. Seven people and a dog, four beds. But just this feeling of uneasiness, and I need to continually remind myself, your circumstances, they are what they are. But you can put your hope and find your joy in the person who controls all things. So do that. Really inspired by one of our good friends who recently passed away this week of cancer uh, during her years-long battle, during her years-long decline. I got to see both from up close and from afar just her hope and her joy and her satisfaction, not in her circumstance, not in a desired outcome, but in her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God worked in her in ways and God used her in ways that impacted hundreds, if not thousands of people who came into contact with her. And I pray that that would be true for all of us here at Veritas as well. As I was preparing for this message, a little bit nervous not to speak in front of people, but I was thinking to myself, like, what, what if I don't get the identity of Jesus just right? Like, what if I don't say the right words? What if my phrases aren't catchy enough? What if my cadence is off? What if I trip and fall? And I was in my office the other day just thinking about those things, worried about those things, and I just started laughing. It's like, it's, it doesn't matter. Because God, because God's word Because the person and work of Jesus Christ, that proclaims the identity of Jesus. And we can always look to those things. And so, Veritas, are you fixing your gaze? Are you fixing your focus on Jesus? When you wake up in the morning, do you desire to hear from him from his word? When you wake up in the morning, do you desire to have his ear? Do you desire to speak to him through prayer? Or do other things, do other people grab your attention? Maybe your first priority is your phone, or your work, or your family, or your shows, or your hobbies, or other things. You see, I can tell my kids, I can tell you to love and follow Jesus, to surrender your life to him, to be in awe of the fact that God came down to us, that God put on flesh, 
fully man, fully God in the form of Jesus Christ. I can say he's the ultimate authority. I can say submit to him. I can say, hey, no matter what storm is going on, you can put your hope and find joy in the one who controls all things. I can tell my kids that. I can tell you that. But I want my life to display that. And I want our church to display that as well. I'll leave you with a quote from a commentary I read this week, and it says, Who you say Jesus is will determine everything about how you follow him. If you believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah who came to the earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death, and to reign and rule over all as Lord, then that changes everything about how you live. And it's true. Do you say those things and does your life reflect that? So Veritas, I would just encourage you to spend some time today or this week marveling at and gazing upon Jesus, who's God with us, he's the promised Messiah, and he has authority over all. And then ask yourself, does my life reflect what I claim to believe? How might God work in us as a church, in a couple thousand people, if we truly acknowledge that Jesus is God with us, that he is truly the Messiah, and we submit to his authority, not just with our words, but with our actions. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you sent Jesus to us to fulfill a task that we never could. Let's be honest, it's easy to say things. A lot of us in here know what we should say. We know what we should um, talk about. We know the right answers. God, but not only do you want us to proclaim with our mouth those things, you want us to display the gospel with our lives as well. So I pray that you would be our top priority. I pray that you would just give us a desire and a passion to know you, to spend time with you. God, I pray that those around us would notice something is different because you are our treasure, because you are our joy, because you are our source of hope. God, we love you. May you get the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.